Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. If you like this podcast and you want it without advertisements, head over to Patreon.com and become a member of The Brian McClanahan Show. For 10 bucks a month, you get all the podcasts ad-free, including video, and you also get a special Q&A podcast. I'm only going to answer your questions, your listener-generated episodes, through those Q&As. So head over to Patreon.com. Get this podcast ad-free, no ads, not even things like this, and you really do help support The Brian McClanahan Show with really cool stuff on the back end. The Founding Fathers are under attack. Who knew in 2009, when I wrote my first book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, that George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and a litany of the other Founding Fathers would be under assault today? Well, I did, and that's why I wrote that book. It's my first, it's still my bestseller, Going out and pick it up whenever books are sold online. The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers. You'll really enjoy it. Small isn't beautiful. Well, there are people that think that locally is actually a pretty bad idea. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Well, let's talk about localism, the ideology of thinking locally and acting locally. And I say that because that's what I'm going to address. Now, the theme of this podcast has for years been think locally, act locally. And I have emphasized that because of the traditional nature of America. And, of course, the Anglo-American tradition itself, the larger tradition that is part of America, and, of course, Southern Republicanism or American Republicanism with a lowercase r. But if you put an ism at the end of it, it becomes an ideology. And ideologies tend to be utopian and destructive. They aren't a panacea. They aren't a fix-all for everything. There has to be some type of anchor to these things, or they simply become, just like any other ideology, Dangerous, because if you're just going to believe in a set of mythical principles that don't have any anchor, don't have any traditions, don't have anything to keep them in place, you're no better than a progressive. You're no better than Edward Bellamy or any of the other people, Herbert Crowley. I've, I've got uh, my most recent class at McClanahan Academy, Progressives, American Progressives, where I get into these people. There is a certain core of, set of core beliefs for these people that would exist only between their ears that they have to live by. And of course, it's not based on anything real or tangible. It's based on what they think society should be. And if that's where you're working from, then you have issues. There's also no realism to this. And I say realism with an ism, but there's nothing, there's nothing realistic about it. And that's the problem when you get into ideology. And when you start 
working from an assumption that something is simply better because I think it's better without any practice and it being better, then you run into problems. This is where we look at the Constitution and those that wanted to make changes to the United States government, they were certainly interested in innovation. And in fact, when you look at the Philadelphia Convention and the ratification debates, those who opposed the Constitution did it on traditional terms. Well, we know this thing works, but we don't know where any of this other stuff is going to go. We know if we do this, we're going to get this because our experience will show us that. This is John Dickinson. You know, Experience must be our only guide. Reason may mislead us. It might be reasonable to think these things work, but they don't work. And so the theme of this show is Think Locally, Act Locally because it's worked. And I say it's worked because it's protected certain things in the Anglo-American tradition. Over the centuries, I'm going back now a thousand years practically to the Magna Carta. Now, of course, the critics will quickly point out that Think Locally, Act Locally has a tendency to drift into local tyrants that you're going to have an oligarchy takeover, that you're going to have a situation that you would get just as much tyranny at the local as you could in an all-powerful central state. It depends on how you measure these things. And of course, there are certain things you have to have to make any of this work. You can have a localism situation where you can have the local being primary in an area where I wouldn't want to live. For example, you could have the local be primary under Sharia law. Well, I'm probably certain that most people listening to this podcast wouldn't want to live under Sharia law. But it could be there, right? I mean, that could be a local situation. From the Anglo-American tradition, that would be a disaster. But if you are a person who believes in Sharia law, maybe that works better for you. But it would work better for you in your own place, right? Not under a system that has been built on the Anglo-American tradition. You see, you start getting incompatible things butting into each other, and this is where you need some sense of homogeneity, right? You need a people that are grounded in the same type of political culture traditions, a, a real nation in a sense of the traditional term. When you get outside of that, you start to see conflict because you're going to have cultures butting into each other and it's going to create problems. Also, you could say there's a culture in France that's different from the culture in England. French, France is a unitary, singular state, and it doesn't really believe in the local. It believes in the center. The local in France caused problems because the king wanted the local to be under his will. Right? This is Louis XIV. So that's why he created Versailles. So the local is creating problems, so France eventually centralized all power, and that's become the French political culture. Germany was very decentralized, but you do have Prussia as being the dominant section, eventually, the dominant kingdom in Germany, and their culture was different from, say, other parts of Germany, maybe the western part of Germany or the southern part of Germany. So it does matter where you're talking about. And we're talking about local cultures again. Areas that had been fairly similar and homogenous for generations. You have to have that. 
Otherwise, you're just getting into a utopian community where we're going to all live together and make this all work, but you're coming from all over, all over the place. And you don't necessarily have the same type of culture as everyone else. Even in situations where you don't all get along or see things eye to eye when it comes to politics, if you have a similar background in culture, things seem to work better. Okay, so localism as an ideology can be dangerous. Localism as an ideology can be uh, utopian. And in that way, it's not really desirable. But locally, as a tradition, think locally, where you're thinking about where you are and acting on that to try to work within the traditions, framework, political culture, the things that you have that you've been given over years in that area works just fine. It doesn't also mean that you're not going to look outside of that. I mean, local economies are great and you should buy as much locally as you can. But there are some problems with that. I mean, look, getting things that you need. If you have a much more open economy where you have trade outside of that, people can make more money. People, of course, can uh, get things that they need or want. So the broader concept of trade, I mean, even when you go back to the early Jeffersonians, right, in America, John Taylor of Caroline, they all talked to me. We had had to have the small farmer, but the small farmer, of course, needed to get their product to market. So you had an international market. They believed in markets. They believed in selling things and acquiring things that weren't necessarily produced right there. So when you start getting into that situation, everything's got to produce right here. We all got to be as closed economies, closed system. You're no better really than, say, the 17th century Puritans uh, who were tyrants in their own backyard. I mean, look, I, I'm not in favor of that. There has to be some type of political culture that would be sustainable for the good of the whole. Now, this is a critique of, say, the 1607 project that the Abbeville Institute is unveiling this weekend, by the way. If you're listening to us on Thursday, tomorrow is the launch date of that, or at least you're going to see it after this weekend. And there is a critique. When you do this, if you don't believe, for example, in the proposition nation, well then, you're going to get a whole bunch of tyrants. You're going to get all these horrible things because there is no anchor. There's no, there's no structure that would make it to where people would adhere to a particular set of beliefs. Well, I would say that's incorrect. And we know this because the tradition itself would produce Bill of Rights in the states. We know that people in these local communities were certainly agreeable to, to the Anglo-American tradition, the things that have been produced, the rule of law, for example, jury trials, protection of private property. These things were important. There are some fundamental things you have to have to make these things work. The progressives were always against property because property would create anchors. It would anchor people into things and it would anchor them into tradition, not ideology. Property becomes important. Land, of course, localism, and there's a certain element of land to it. But this is what the, the populace essentially wanted. They wanted people with land. They wanted people with an anchor into society, with, with their feet into the dirt, so that they had something tangible to defend. And as you create agriculture, you create traditions and customs because people live in the same area for generations. Those things become important. The other part of it, which they all recognized, 
was a certain type of moral society, generally Christianity. And Christianity is different from the other monotheistic religions. It has a different set of principles, beliefs, and those things would create the most moral society for the greatest good of the community. Now, it didn't mean you had to be rigid in it, or I would say that you had to be punitive, as, say, the Puritans were. But certainly, you would have a certain belief system that would work, right? A certain code of ethics that would work. Now, the Greeks weren't Christians. The Romans, early Romans, weren't Christians. They had a society that worked. We can criticize much of their society, and maybe we don't want to live in ancient Athens or ancient Sparta, for example. Sparta would have been pretty brutal. Or we don't want to live in ancient Rome. I mean, those things may not work because our political culture is different. But they did; they had a certain set of ethical values and other things, and it worked for them, right? It worked for them. So in our system, the Anglo-American tradition, there are things that work and don't. So I want to actually focus on an article that was produced at the Front Porch Republic, uh, frontporchrepublic.com. So you can get their journal. I subscribe to it. Um, and I think it's not, it's not expensive. It's, you know, you get four issues a year, I think. And they, of course, have their, their website, which is interesting as well. Uh, they are big Wendell Berry supporters. In fact, Wendell Berry is their guy. They often look to Wendell Berry for advice, inspiration. Wendell Berry is an agrarian. Wendell Berry has written literature, um, nonfiction and fiction works. Um, he is a poet. He's from Kentucky, and he certainly believes in the local. And so a lot of these people that read Wendell Berry, and, and I'll give you an example, someone near me that's locally, uh, they have a little farm, an organic farm, and he's the guy's a hippie. I mean, that's the best way to describe him. But he reads a lot of Wendell Berry, and he loves the idea of the local. And so they have a co-op and other things that they do, and people will buy into their co-op. It's very expensive. And the produce that you get isn't always the best. And so it's hard to, to really subscribe to it because, well, you can get better things other places. You are supporting the local, and so you, you do it at times. But you also recognize there might be something a little better out there. Maybe another local farmer comes in and has a better co-opsy. There does create competition. The other thing. The reason that I've talked about Think Locally, Act Local in this program for now what, seven years, eight years actually, eight years, as we're rocking on here, over 900 episodes. Um, the reason I've mentioned these things is because when you think about what entities put the most pressure on your life, well, it's almost always the local. It's your local police. It's your it's your local you know homeowners association. It's your local government. It's your... It's your, the laws in your city. When you go back to mask mandates, where, if, if your state had a mask mandate but your city didn't, well, that was pretty good. You know, so the city can often reflect the political culture of the area. And if the city is just saying, yeah, we're not doing that, then you're not going to have to face some of these things. If your local law enforcement doesn't enforce laws, and you always have this. This is worth thinking locally and acting locally. In Virginia, for example, in the pre-American War for Independence period, you had conflict oftentimes between the counties and, of course, Richmond. The county sheriffs wouldn't always enforce the laws of the governor. They would just say, yeah, we're not really doing that here. This is a form of nullification. 
And so you would have these things. This is where the local matters. Now, I've mentioned you can vote with your feet. If you don't like the local, you can go somewhere else. Maybe you like that. Maybe you like this area better. Then you start to get into these problems of political culture, though. Where you come from might be different than where you're going. And that might create some conflict. So this thing isn't, it isn't perfect. And there isn't a perfect society. And I think anyone in the Jeffersonian period who recognized that, there's always going to be problems. You can always shake. You can always get a local tyrant. These things could happen. So there isn't an ideal anything. This is where you always have to remain vigilant. It's what the Jeffersonians would have said. Well, you have to remain vigilant. There are certainly problems in all this. There are certainly problems with the local. There's certainly problems with reactionary situations. All these things can create issues. If there is a fundamental belief system, or I should say a code of ethics, right? That code of ethics can work, or a tradition, more importantly, not necessarily a, an ideology, but a tradition that would make these things work. And that you can show, well, this is how we've done it, and we've done it this way because it works, and it creates this type of situation, this type of society. That's not an ideology, then. That's based on experience. But if you just say local is the best, because we're going to trade locally, and it's going to, it's going to create do this X, Y, and Z... Well, is that from tradition or is that just from what you think would be the best? I mean, this this is where you run into problems. So this particular piece at uh, Front Porch Republic, Small Isn't Beautiful, Localism and Its Critics by Matt Stewart, is a, an interview with a man named Trevor Latimer who wrote a book entitled Small Isn't Beautiful. And the book was reviewed by Front Porch Republic. And so this is a conversation with Matt Stewart and Trevor Latimer. Now, I'd highly recommend going out and looking at this book and also the review of the book by Adam Smith because these these, uh, critiques of Think Local, Act Local are important. Or localism. You see, I wouldn't even subscribe to a localism ideology. There are certainly problems, even with the local. You can have it. There's no doubt about it. However, it's preferable to... Massive centralization. Massive centralization is culture crushing. Not for the dominant culture, which of course it can perpetuate and solidify. If that's your culture, well then fine. But the problem is, of course, when you get massive centralization, you get unintended consequences with it. Typically, it is, again, tradition and culture crushing. For the constituent parts that may not believe in the same thing. This is why in the United States we had a federal republic, a federal system, where you had the states able to act as agents of their own cultures and traditions. The domestic, which is the area of most concern to your everyday life, would be controlled by people who were like you. And... If that's the case, as long as they adhered to a Republican form of government, well, the founding generation was fine with whatever they did within that system. Because that wasn't what the center should be doing. The center should be handling trade, meaning that we have a free trade. We trade with each other. We get good markets for our products. We get good prices for the things we want to buy. It is an international look at the world. 
and we defend ourselves from those who would try to invade and take over in, in a collective situation. That's what the center was there to do. Not to create a massive centralized economy that would be dictatorial, that would control credit, that would control production, that would place bounties on goods and promote some and hurt others, that would excessively tax, that would launch foreign wars. You know, the center was not supposed to do that. It was there for commerce, free commerce, and defense. Not offense. Not crushing traditions or crushing the local of the areas. And you go back and people look. You go back to 1788, 1789, and 1790. There were people, but particularly in the ratification period, who were highly critical of Rhode Island. Rhode Island. Because they thought Rhode Island was an odd place. And when you get into the 1840s, there's something called the Door War, where you have the people of Rhode Island essentially rebel against what they consider to be an oligarchical government in Rhode Island. They rebel against it. And there was some talk about the United States sending in the troops to protect this oligarchy in Rhode Island. This is when John Tyler was president. And uh, the state government, which was still operating under the charter from the 17th century, said, you know, uh, the, the real issue was voting, right? Only certain people could vote because you had to have land. Well, Rhode Island is such a small place. The land was essentially gobbled up by a few freeholders. A lot of people couldn't vote because they couldn't own land. So they rebelled against the government. In, in Rhode Island. The government petitions the United States, John Tyler, to say, look, we've got a problem here. You need to send, we need to send in the troops. Well, Tyler said, yeah, all right, we're going to send in an advisor and we're going to see what's happening here. And I'm not, I'm not going to even agree to do anything here or have Congress do anything until we see what's really going on. Well, you know what happened over time? Well, the Constitution was reformed. They had a new Constitution. It eventually was implemented. This rebellion in Rhode Island actually worked. The local rebelled against the all-powerful center in that state. doesn't mean you can't have tyrants in the states. This can happen. You're going to have to be vigilant. You're going to have to always be aware of what's happening here. And it takes active participation by people. This is where they said, the founding generation said, there's never a perfect system. There's no perfection. An ism would imply perfection. You can't have that. And I'm not saying that the people at the Front Porch Republic are utopians. I think some people tend to shade that way with local ism. They tend to get there. But you cannot have a perfect local system. So, this is... Um, a follow-up interview, and it's Front Porch Republic is uh, writing this, and there are some interesting things here. The definition of localism, or more specifically, normative localism, that guides a small isn't beautiful is simple. Localism is belief or the claim that we should prioritize a local by making decisions, exercising authority, or implementing policy locally or more locally. We discuss this definition and more below. So, that's actually not a bad definition of things. We should prioritize the local by making decisions, exercising authority, or implementing policy locally or more locally. Right? It's a, 
the more local, the better. Or uh, the more, the closer to the population, the better. The man who wrote the book, Small Isn't Beautiful, Trevor, Trevor Latimer, has a PhD in politics from Princeton University and has taught at New York University, Dartmouth College, University of Georgia. Latimer says, first of all, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to develop some themes and soften some arguments from my book. I feel honored that the book has, has garnered so much attention from, from Front Porch Republic. Stewart says, it's my pleasure. We're grateful for friendly debate. First question, is there really a danger that localism is taking over America? Like Adam Smith in his review of your book at Front Porch Republic, I found myself surprised to read your description of the influence of localism. In what ways is localism a powerful force, and in what ways is it still a marginal movement? Latimer says, no, there is no danger that localism will take over America. If I said that or implied that in the book, I was exaggerating for effect. Wait, not so fast, he says. There is a danger that localism will take over America. But it's small and of roughly the same magnitude of the, of the danger of America turning into a centralized dictatorship. And this is a really interesting argument. Well, I mean, yeah, localism, but there is a danger. It's the same danger as these people that run around saying we're going to need a, a centralized dictatorship. Now, this would assume that we don't already have this. You see, this is a problem with dealing with the theoretical. We already have a centralized dictatorship in America. If you don't think so, just look at the legal system and the way things are done. It's what I talked about. with Look, the reason I brought up Hawaii yesterday, this is cataclysmic. It's cataclysmic because... Hawaii had the guts to say, yeah, we're not paying attention to the Supreme Court, but how many Americans would just say the Supreme Court has spoken? This is Bill O'Reilly. The Supreme Court spoke. We have to follow it. Is that not a centralized dictatorship in some ways? It's a certain type of dictatorship. It may not be a singular dictatorship, but do we not treat the president who has executive authority in a way that would be similar to a dictator? Even now, we know that we can throw up roadblocks. We know that people can do things to try to thwart these, these situations. And it doesn't always work out, but the president can issue executive orders that have a tremendous impact on what Americans can and cannot do in their daily lives. We know that the president can, can issue executive agreements with foreign powers that can have the weight of the law. We know that the central government has a tremendous amount of power over your everyday life. For example, um, wetland protection. If you have a wetland in your yard, the central government can tell you what you can and cannot do with that. Your property, which is your money, is confiscated before you even get it. If you don't let them do that, let them do that, you pay extreme penalties on your taxes. So we already have it. We have the most powerful government in the history of the world. And to say that we don't have a dictatorship is, I mean, fantasy. We already have it. It doesn't have to be a singular individual, a singular tyrant. We already have tyranny. It can be a tyranny of 535. It can be a tyranny of the 50% plus one. We have it. We have a dictatorship. We have everyone focusing on the center at all times. This is the whole point of this show, to try to get people to think more about the local, because, you know, this stuff really does matter. You can say, well, McClanahan, you're being inconsistent. You say the local matters. Now you say the center matters. How much money does the center give to the local? If, if the states um, would stand up to the center, they try to cut their cash. We're seeing it in Texas. Uh, well, you want to resist me on the border? No more natural gas permits. Is that not a dictatorship? Do we not have that?
Now, it doesn't mean that people can't ignore these things. Of course they can. But do we not, I mean, so we're not having people rounded up and thrown into the gulag, you know, for, but, but try to oppose, I don't know, certain tenets of the culture war where you get to, you could be sued for all kinds of things. That becomes, and that's federal law that's creating, in many ways, a dictatorship of the center. Right? So there are things that are already there. Latimer, by saying, well, we, we won't have a dictatorship, we already have it. We already have it. He says, in my book, I show that there are many different kinds of localism. I hesitate to paint Front Porch Republic with too broad a brush, but I think it would be fair to say that many of its localist readers are communitarian or classically Republican in their localism. There is a romantic strain as well. In these forms, localism becomes associated with human flourishing and a particular vision of the good. These are perfectionist views. So what he's saying is that it's utopian. And he's saying, you know, I think that your readers are ten, tend to shade into the utopian. And there's other kinds of localism, and that's the Adam Smith. He gets into some of these things where he says that, you know, Latimer will differentiate between these different kinds of local. And look, if you go back and read uh, Kreitner's Break It Up, he talks about the efforts of people to break apart the center from, you know, secessionist movements throughout America. He's a leftist. Latimer is also a leftist. They're looking at these things and saying, yeah, I mean, the center is actually better in many ways. I mean, this is what Kreitner would say. The center is actually better. I mean, secession can actually be very dangerous. And Latimer is making that case, too. The center actually is better. Localism can be very dangerous. But this utopian adherence to localism because it's localism can also be, I mean, it's, it's a utopian vision, right? It's perfectionist. He says, there is another kind of localism exemplified by the American Enterprise Institute's localism in America. That form of localism is consequentialist rather than perfectionist. For the AEI crowd, localism should be adhered to because it helps solve problems. It says nothing about the good life. Here I'm really just rehashing a major divide in moral theory, consequentialism versus perfectionism. But it maps well enough into two very different strands of localism. I think he's right about this. What I'm essentially advocating is that kind of uh, consequentialism. But I would say there's actually a, there's, there's a middle road there. There's a middle road because when you talk about perfectionism, it's not really an ism you're basing on traditions and then consequentialism, what the local does work because you can solve problems from the local and because the traditions of the area are more receptive to reflecting the political culture, this is why it works, you see. That's the whole point. So Latimer says, I think this gets me closer to really answering your question. Localism is certainly still a marginal movement in its communitarian or republican or perfectionist forms, the very forms that most that resonate most with the porch. Adam Smith, in his review of my book, is right that Wendell Berry hasn't been named Secretary of Agriculture and that the Secretary of Agriculture probably hasn't read Wendell Berry. President Obama did, however, award Wendell Berry the 2010 National Humanities Medal alongside Joyce Carol Oates and Philip Roth, among others. My guess is I don't claim to have evidence is that communitarian localism is not on the march precisely because it has a comprehensive conception of the good as rich and as thick and as difficult to explain and adhere to as Marx's conception of human flourishing through creative work. Perfectionism is hard, and the problem for communitarian localists like Wendell Berry is that it's a vision of the good life that many of us simply cannot accept 
as much as we might like to. I think that's true. I don't think Latimer is off kilter here. When you get into utopian forms, when you get into these things, it does create issues. Utopianism doesn't always work. It creates issues. So, you run into problems. And so, we have to be careful about that. Now, in Wendell Berry's world, in the little area of Kentucky, and as people go and say, you know, these things might be good for us. I mean, it's no different than Henry George setting up the single tax idea in Fairhope, Alabama, or at least his adherence to it. In Fairhope, Alabama, right? Did it work? Well, for those people, because they believed in it, it worked over time for a little while. I mean, they've, they've abandoned much of it. But certainly, I mean, it's utopian. So when we, when we shade into utopianism, that's a problem. When we look at it as a way of reflecting traditions, an already established tradition, culture, people, things that have been done before, a reaction to innovation. When I say innovation, not good innovation, but innovation that's going to wreck culture and traditions, that's a bad thing. Unless, I mean, look, particularly if that tradition is based on some type of ethics that have been there and worked well and given the most liberty. I mean, we have to measure these things, right? I mean, as Americans, we do measure certain types of things like liberty and independence. These are things that are important in our collective political culture. The Anglo-American tradition, we measure these things based on that. Like I said, we wouldn't want to live under Sharia law, which could be local, but not under our set of traditions and beliefs. It's not something we want to do. That would not be a Republican system in our mind. It would not be a system that we would want. And so we would be opposed to that. Stewart says, which is more concerning to you, what we might call bumper sticker localists who simply assume localism is good but live like any other American, or principled localists who have changed their lives to become more localists and who advocate coherently for localist principles? Again, what kind of localist principles? This is like saying I advocate for liberty. What kind of liberty? Is it the puritanical form of liberty? Is it the cavalier form of liberty? Is it the, and I'm using these broad strokes going back to David Hackett Fisher's, which kind of liberty? Which kind of tradition? Is it New England tradition or is it the Southern tradition? Is it the Mid-Atlantic tradition? Is it, what is it? Which kind of, is it a Jeffersonian tradition? Is it something else? Which kind of tradition are we talking about here? Neither bumper sticker localists nor principal localists concern me all that much. The bumper sticker localists are certainly annoying. Incidentally, I own a bumper sticker, a gift from my snarky colleague, that urges fellow motorists to support their local everything. The principal localists, not to imply that all the other localists are, are unprincipled, are certainly far more interesting. I really respect them and value their contribution to our discourse. They aren't concerning for the same reason as, as my answer to the previous question. It's hard to convince people to adopt somewhat arcane perfectionist views especially do not promise salvation. My real concern is that when bumper sticker localism or principal localism seep into the culture and influence people in positions of power, I suppose if I had to choose, I'm more concerned by bumper sticker localism because it's easier to accept and appeal, and, and apply, I'm sorry, apply uncritically. Which would be the question is what I'm saying, think locally, act locally, a bumper sticker kind of localism. No, because... I recognize that uh, that think locally, act locally is going to be based not on a utopian vision, 
but on the culture and traditions of the area in which you live. Not on some uh, grand thing that I think would be good. But just basically thinking about where you are and acting on that first. Not thinking about the center first, but trying to act from the bottom up. That's the whole point. Think about your local government. Get involved in your school boards. Get involved in your city council. Get involved in your county council. Get involved in your state government. Look at these things. Don't always knee-jerk to the center. Don't think about the presidency all the time or the Congress. This is what, this is what we do that's dangerous for America. Stewart says, When I was first encountering localism, I came across a paragraph from Caleb Stiegel who, that has struck with me. To practice a discipline of place is to believe that to suffer one's place and one's people in the particular, particularity of its and their needs is the primary basis of finding love, friendship, and authentic, meaningful life. This is nothing less, I would argue, than the key to the pursuit of Christian holiness, which is the whole of the Christian adventure. To love, to live in love with the family and limits of one's existence, suffering the places, customs, rights, joys, and sorrows of the people who are in close relation to you by family, friendship, and community, all in service of the truth, goodness, and beauty that is best experienced directly. Whether to find a Stiegel has it here or another way, the idea of place is not a primary theme of your book, though tangential discussions show up in the belonging and nature chapters. How might this sensibility fit into your arguments against localism? Latimer says, well, you stumped me on this, right? Place matters is what I'm saying here, right? So where you are, act on where you are, reflective of the people and the culture that you're in. It's not... A, you know, Wendell Berry's Kentucky may not work in Portland, Oregon, or in you know Connecticut, or in Alabama, or Florida, or Texas. It may not work in those places. It is built on a place and the people there. That is think local, act local. I think that Stewart summed this up, and Latimer says, I don't really have an answer for that. My colleague, Paulina Ochoa Espejo, has done a much better job than I have drawing the connections between localism and place. When I was looking for a way to understand that what the various strands of localism had in common, I gravitated towards space rather than place because, in my view, not all localists care about place, but all localists care about space, at least to some degree. Place or space. Place matters. Many people feel a connection to the places in which they live and work. Even I feel connected to place sometimes, usually through a vivid memory of happiness or camaraderie. Now, what has Latimer just admitted there? The roots, right? There's been studies about this. If you move people around all the time, a rootless America is a problem. This is a Southern tradition. It was grounded in something, right? Even New England had that. And as you move around, as you become rootless, you destroy all of that. So people that are always moving around from here to there, I mean, think about people of military families. They move all the time. The kids, the children, don't really become rooted in any place. There's some place that they might think, oh, that's nice because they have happiness or camaraderie. But it's not really something that roots them. This is Alexander Hamilton, who wasn't really rooted anywhere. He believed in nationalism. Or it contrasts to Thomas Jefferson, who was rooted at a place in Virginia. He didn't look over the mountains. Place matters. 
And then Stuart says, grappling with your book helped me see that I'm more committed to federalism than localism as you define it. I have no problem admitting that local governments can fail, as it did in the U.S. during the Jim Crow era, for example. I mean, all, we, we all go back to that, right? It's the, well, the, the South failed at localism. Of course, Jim Crow was not created in the South. It was created in New England. Uh, and, I mean, this is something that people are going to, well, the, the localism will fail with these things. But because I think the national government has more power and attracts more attention now, I think the balance of power needs to shift in the direction of state and local governments. I would guess that at least some other localists are more federalist, uh, relative localists, the normative localists as well, and that they want to help balance the scales in the direction of the local because they worry that the scales are currently weighted too much in the direction of the national international. Your arguments are directed primarily against normative localists, and you acknowledge the value of local governments. Would you consider yourself a relative localist at all, given your knowledge of the value of some localist insights? Latimer says, you caught me. In some cases, I accept that we should make decisions, exercise authority, or implement policy locally or more locally. I think the idea of balancing the scales makes a lot of sense. Nevertheless, as I argue in the book, it's fairly hard to tell where the balance currently lies. Some people think the national government is too powerful. Others don't think it's powerful enough. These balancing the scales argument works equally well on both sides. So Stuart's saying, look, I, I was reading this, you know, maybe I'm more of a federalist. We should have local. I mean, you know, all these people should be listening to my show, by the way. I've been talking about this for years. And anyways, if Stuart was listening to this show, maybe he would already come to this conclusion a long time ago. <clears throat> I agree that localists might be inclined to overlook ways, Stuart says, that local governments tip the scales in their favor at time. An objection, nonetheless. Failures of local governments seem to be limited in a way that failures of a national or international governments are not. In your book, you suggest local governments fail by falling into chaos, and larger-scale governments fail by becoming tyrannical. The technological developments of the digital age and the increased potential for surveillance that is now possible suggests to me that concerns about tyranny might be more pressing and concerns about chaos. You write, quote, Centralization can facilitate great good as well as great evil. Localism guards against great evils, but also thwarts great good. Again, not true at all. Now, if people are very rigid, you may not have any type of movement in your tradition. And that can happen. It can happen, but it doesn't always happen. Particularly when you have people, and I'll, and I'll point back to someone like John Taylor of Caroline or John Randolph of Roanoke, who certainly understood the outside world. They were part of the world. They just weren't always in the world. And they didn't necessarily abandon things that they thought might be better at all. They didn't do that. And so I think that is a, a cop-out to think that the local uh, would be maybe uh, preferable to having someone from New England dictate to them what they could do in Virginia. All right. So the, the I don't want to focus on this for more than an hour. This goes on. And I think that you should go out and read the rest of the interview. It's at free, uh, frontporchrepublic.com. And uh, you can find it there. It's, it's really interesting. Also, you know, subscribe to Front Porch Republic. They have a lot of good material. Uh, really interested in this idea of think locally, act locally. It's... Um, it's a great uh, publication, and they do good work with this. Uh, they should all be listening to this show, by the way. And uh, we, could, we could have a real discussion about these things. But regardless, hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.